We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. Hello, listeners. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio and podcast show that brings independent and interesting STEM, so that's science, technology, engineering, maths and medicine, to you from Tasmania. This show is supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium youth station. So head over to edge.org.au for more information about them. I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording, the Palawa people. We're recording here on Lutruita, and as this is a podcast, I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land from where you, the listener, are tuning in from. On behalf of everyone here in the studio, I pay my respects to elders past and present. My name is Ollie Dove, and I'm joined today by our guest, Dr. Marcus Sultan from the Australian Antarctic Division. So thank you so much for coming on today, Marcus. As a marine ecologist that works with studying the behaviour of marine predators, your work is possibly the closest a guest has come to my own research field. <laughs> so naturally, I'm incredibly biased in finding your work fascinating, but I'm sure our listeners are also going to be deeply involved in what you do. So Marcus... What is it that you currently do at the Australian Antarctic Division? Hi Ollie, my job is a field coordinator and I work in the science branch with the Seabirds team. And my job's to help deliver the field program for the, the Seabirds work that we do in Antarctica um, on all of the species that breed down there. Are you involved from the very beginning in planning a project or do people bring you onto their team to make it happen? Yeah, we have a, a long-term uh, monitoring project that feeds a lot of information to fisheries management and managing activities on land. And my role is to help train people, get equipment down to Antarctica, make sure the samples get back, um, processing the samples and collating the data and doing some quality checks then um, help feed that to the scientists um, to answer our questions. Yeah, so you mentioned you're working in the seabird team, but then it's having effects in fisheries management. So what's the link between the two of them? Yeah, so down in Antarctica, there's a, a few fisheries, but a primary one is the krill fishery. And um, a lot of the seabirds that breed in Antarctica feed on krill. Um, in particular, penguins, they consume uh, quite a bit of krill and they're also quite accessible because they breed um, on land um, at the surface and um, there's a lot of a daily penguins. So they were flagged as a good species for us to monitor in order to assess how well um, the ecosystem is going um, and whether we're taking too much krill from the system um, and it's having visible impacts on the seabirds. Yeah. So how long has this big scale looking at the Adelie penguins been going on for? We've had a monitoring program in Antarctica for over 30 years. So there's a bunch of um, sites set up around the continent uh, managed by different countries. Um, we have one in particular at Mawson Station at Bechevay's Island and it's been yeah, monitoring Adelie penguins there for over 30 years, looking at where they're foraging, what they're eating, how many mouths there are to feed and um, how many chicks they're producing year after year. Oh, cool. Going back to the logistics, are you training people here in Hobart before they go or are you involved in what they're doing down there? Yeah, a bit of both. So um, we usually recruit people who have experience working with birds 
um, and uh, the, the sort of work that we're planning to do down in Antarctica. But then there's specific training um, to ensure they know how to deliver our program. Um, so making sure they're across our methods so that they're consistent from year to year. Um, and also importantly, the handling of the, the birds um, to weigh them when we're collecting samples and for attaching the devices. Are there any things or any trends or results across the 30 years that have come through that are very prevalent or is it still just ongoing monitoring? Yeah, definitely. So we're constantly keeping track of how um, the different populations are are trending through time. Um, Yeah, and there's definitely been some interesting findings um, with some daily populations going up and some staying quite stable over recent times. And then at Mawson, actually, we've recently published some work showing a dramatic population decline, which is a bit concerning. We have some um, evidence as to why that's happened or or what could be causing that decline, but we kind of need a lot more information um, on that for us to manage it or or identify the, the things that we can manage. Do you often get to go down there yourself into the field? Yeah, so I started working with the program, I guess, at Macquarie Island um, and I spent uh, a summer, winter and summer there. That was in 2016 and then the following three summers I went down to Antarctica um, to Davis Station and then twice at Mawson Station. Oh, we're going to be dipping more into that fieldwork later because they've just actually opened up an exhibition about Macquarie Island, I believe. That's right. So um, some great people have pulled together a Macquarie Island Foundation and um, that's to support a lot of the conservation work that's going on there. It's a a very um, precious um, island um, with a lot of wildlife and natural values. Yeah, it's great that we're we're investing um, some work in that. It's managed by Tasmanian managers um, and the Australian um, government. So, yeah, I'm, I'm super excited that those guys have pulled that together and um, there's going to be um, more support for conservation work at Macquarie Island. Yeah, it's fantastic. You can never have too much support for conservation work. <laughs> so, Marcus, did you know that you always wanted to end up in marine ecology? Was this – are you in your dream job now? I guess not originally. When I was at high school, I didn't really think that marine ecology was a, a job I could pursue. I knew more about working at a zoo and working in veterinary practices. So I did some some stints working in, in those, um, some work experience during high school and then went on to do some study at university and it was at that time that I, I learnt more about the science side of things and conservation and that led to a year um, working at Phillip Island in Victoria on little penguins and spent a, a year researching those guys and that re- is really where I got exposed to the, the different types of work that we can do with marine predators and from that led on to I did a PhD on seals looking at their foraging behaviour. And Phillip Island is like the holy grail for little penguin research. They do a lot of amazing things over there. So listeners, stick with us for part two as we're going to be asking more about how and why we track animals in the sea. Welcome back listeners, you're tuned into That's What I Call Science and today we are swimming around with animals of the sea. My name is Ollie Dove and I'm joined by our expert guest, Dr Marcus Sultan from the Australian Antarctic Division. 
Marcus, in my PhD, I've used biologers, which are these small devices attached to an animal that record data. And the first time I ever heard your name was when someone said to me, oh, Marcus from the AAD does what you do as well. And ever since, you've always been the sort of mythical person that I want to meet and ask about tracking animals. So now that you're finally here and I finally met you, I can ask, what sort of tracking work have you done? Um, I, we do tracking mostly to find out where birds are feeding, but also how um, they're interacting with prey. So, for example, the penguins feed on krill, and krill are often in big swarms. Um, so knowing where they're getting that food from is really important. Um, but then also, like, when a penguin dives into a swarm, what happens with the prey? So does it scatter? Are they taking one prey item at a time? Like they don't have a big mouth like a whale, so they can't scoop it all in at once. So we we kind of put different devices on to look at different things. We're very conscious about how um, heavy they are, so we have to be selective about the type of device we put on on the birds. And a part of that um, decision-making is how long we want it to be on the bird as well. So sometimes we'd like to collect information over the whole breeding season. So often it has to be a very small device um, because they're going to be carrying it for a long time. Um, Other times that might only be on the bird for one foraging trip. So we could put a heavier camera on a penguin and um, then we know it's going to come back to the nest to feed its chick so we can take it off. So with that camera, is that how you work out with the prey dispersal? Is that how you're looking at those things? Because if the device is on the predator, then how do you know about the prey? Yeah, there's a couple of different devices that have been used to look at these sorts of interactions. Um, One is a device that's in your phone and it's called an accelerometer and it helps you um, look at the tilt and the movement of the birds in a very... um, many dimensions and very accurately or very precisely. So, um, yeah, we can use that, but then we don't get the visual. So it's good to complement that with a visual effect. So then we can look at the behaviour of the swarm, but also things like when certain prey items end up in a penguin's diet, is it because the prey item was eaten by a fish that the penguin then ate? And so ended up in the penguin because it was in the fish? Or was the penguin actually pursuing this um, other prey item like a jellyfish? So the cameras help us sort of tease apart those questions and um, answer those, those questions. And how are you finding what the penguin ate? Yeah, so there's been a lot of different ways of looking at diet um, and it's been quite progressive over recent years um, with advances in technology, making it more cost-effective for scientists um, to do different methods. So a long time ago they were killing birds and then dissecting them and looking at their stomach contents and then that kind of moved to um, stomach flushing the birds, so filling their bellies up with water and then tipping them upside down to get them to regurgitate it, just like they would regurgitate food to their chicks and would collect that and could analyse the um, different hard parts in there. You can ID a lot of fish from and krill from different hard parts in their bodies. And um, now we're collecting penguin poo and seabird poo and we're using DNA technology um, to see what sort of prey items are in their faeces. Wow. How do you get the information from the faeces? What's that process? 
Yeah, so we, when we're out in the field, we would collect um, a sample. Ideally, we want it to be nice and fresh. Um, the longer it stays in the Antarctic environment, the quicker the UV um, degrades it, and it's very dry down there, so that damages the, the DNA. Then it goes into a vial with some solution that helps preserve um, the DNA. We bring it back to the lab, and then it gets run, run through some DNA sequencing processes, and of course, there's penguin DNA in the penguin poo. So we need to remove that out of the equation. Um, and then we can amplify or sort of blow up the DNA within the small sample to get a really good picture of um, the different types of prey that are in there and how much of the different types of prey are in the, yeah, in the poo. Oh, wow. And you mentioned that your PhD was on seals. So were you also tracking seals or was it a different type of study? Yeah, diff- so for my PhD, that was based. The fieldwork was based here in Australia. Um, I did get some data given to me on Antarctic fur seals from Heard Island as well. Yeah, I was just really keen in marine predator foraging um, after my work on little penguins. And seals are quite different that they're not attached to land so much as the, the way that seabirds are. They have a bit more flexibility. And so that has different consequences on when they go and, and feed and when they can come back and how long they spend ashore and the different energy requirements. And they can fit more in their mouth. They can pursue different types of prey. So all these things are really exciting for me, which is why I moved from penguins to seals and did similar things with putting devices on them to look at where they were going. Um, some of those devices had temperature loggers on them as well. So we could look at whether um, the seal foraging hotspots were associated with certain ocean features like currents and eddies. What's an eddy? An eddy is like a big circular tornado thing spiralling water um, in the ocean and they can be hundreds of kilometres wide and they can create um, temperature differences in the water that prevent certain species from moving through those barriers. Then it can concentrate the prey and make it a good spot for predators to target. And how does collecting this sort of information about where the prey are and where they're foraging help towards conservation management policies? When we're taking resources out of the environment, um, like different species of fish and krill and so on, we want to make sure that we're leaving enough there that it's it's not impacting um, other species or the ecosystem functions or the relationships between predator and prey. So... To know where predators are foraging and where their prey is and what type of prey they're feeding on and what influences the development of the prey's eggs and then through the juvenile phase and then up to the adult phase. Um, That's all really important for understanding that relationship between our fisheries take and then what the predators are taking. So where they're getting it from, how much and um, what You mentioned how the devices are becoming sort of better. So you have the smaller ones that are going to be on them for longer and the large ones that can be on them for short time. But do you have, if you could predict the future of the field of studying foraging, where do you think it's going to go? What do you think is the next development that could happen? 
Yeah, it's a really tricky one, hey? Like, who would have thought we'd be carrying around computers and the amazing cameras that we have in our pockets these days? So that has really um, helped advance um, the science that we're doing um, with these little devices because cameras and the sensors that we're putting in the devices have just become so much cheaper and accessible to us. We've also been advancing battery technology, so it's been getting smaller. We can pack more and more into a smaller space. So these devices just keep blowing my mind (laughs) that are on the shelves. So it's um, quite incredible what we could be doing, um, sampling different chemistry within the water. So we're already sampling salt and chemicals that are in the water we can start sampling lots of different things that are going to tell us about how that ecosystem is functioning and we can sample things at different resolutions so as things pack more power into them if we want to look at something in the past we could only do over one foraging trip we're going to be able to start to be able to do that over many foraging trips so that's going to be really exciting and help us progress some of the questions that we just haven't been able to answer yeah definitely stick with us listeners for part three as we hear about marcus's adventures in marine ecology Welcome back, listeners. You're tuned into That's What I Call Science. My name is Ollie Dove, and I'm joined by our expert guest, Dr. Marcus Sultan from the Australian Antarctic Division. Your work has taken you across the Southern Ocean and to Antarctica, and also to sub-Antarctic islands like Macquarie that you mentioned. Can you tell us a bit about your work? Yeah, after I'd done a lot of work in Australia, around the um, the offshore islands around Australia, um, I really had a, a keen interest in other islands that were out in remote places. So when I had the opportunity to go to Macquarie Island, I was very excited. I had friends at work in the field who had been there and spoke so highly um, of the place, um, the experience um, working with the remote community there of only like 15 to 30 people. And, um, of course, the concentration of wildlife that's at Macquarie Island is just unlike anything else that we have in Australia. Wow, I've seen photos of it and it just looks jam-packed with animals. So that 15 to 30 people, are there people living there permanently? Yeah, so Australia maintains a a research station at Macquarie Island. Um, It has for many decades. And um, there's usually about 15 people there over winter. And that's to to maintain the functioning of the the whole station and to um, do work on the animals that are there over winter. And then around October um, is usually a summer team that comes in, which is usually around another 15 people. Um, So that's very exciting. It brings new energy to the team um, and lots of interesting work that can happen over summer to do with rocks, to do with plants, to do with animals. What's it like being in such a small community for such a lengthy time period? Yeah, it's, it's very um, interesting to get to meet people who you wouldn't normally meet in your field. So carpenters and um, doctors and chefs, um, there's a, a really um, diverse mix of people there from diverse backgrounds and I found it um, fascinating opportunity to get to meet um, that diversity of people and share the, the passion for the environment at Macquarie Island. Um, very fortunate to be able to walk around um, every, 
everywhere there. And so you're really immersed in the elements um, and it's sort of at a slower pace where you can really take everything in. And you mentioned the carpenters and chefs, which I think often we think of if you're going to be going to these faraway places, you have to be a scientist. But there actually are loads of other jobs on stations and other career paths to lead to them. So what's it like working on Macquarie Island in comparison to working in the coldest place on Earth in Antarctica? Um, fortunately for me, the birds are only there in summer and that's when it's 24 hours of daylight. So at the rocky areas that we're actually spending a lot of time on, they can warm up quite a bit and it can be like five degrees. Wow, um, tropical. I'll, yeah, yeah, a lot of the time when we're there. So you start to feel like, oh, maybe I don't need to be wearing thermals <laughs> right now and my knee-high woolen socks. <laughs> <laughs> so why are the birds only there in summer? So over winter, yeah, obviously it gets very cold and then the ocean starts to freeze. Then around the whole continent, it almost doubles in size because we have this huge extent of ice over the ocean. Um, So that's going to make it very hard for animals to access food to keep them sustained over that cold period. Um, And it's also very dark. So a lot of these predators are visual predators and they need a bit of light in order to find their prey. There are some, of course, that forage way down in the depths of the ocean and that's um, not as important for them. But then they still need the food and a lot of them need air. So if the ocean is covered in ice, then they can't come up just anywhere to breathe. So um, that's why a lot of the predators that are foraging down in Antarctica are there um, at the ice edge. Um, And then so they're, they're leaving the continent itself Um, over winter and and moving out towards the ice edge or some of them like the south polar skewer and the wilson storm petrel that breed in antarctica over winter they're migrating all the way up into the northern hemisphere yeah that's a huge migration for one animal to be able to accomplish and earlier when you were talking about the device sites and you said the heavier ones you can do them on the short trips because they're breeding and you know they're going to come back to their chicks so Are they always breeding in the same area? Is it easy to find them year on year? We're usually only putting these devices on a bird for their their breeding season. Um, There are really small devices that we can attach to a band that goes around their leg and that can stay on for the whole winter period. Um, But yeah, they often come back to the same um, nesting area year after year. So for those long migratory species um, that we have devices on, we are pretty confident that they do come back to the their same site and then we can retrieve the devices then. During the breeding season, they're really attached to their nest. So um, we're very confident that they're going to come back to the same spot. Um, they're often, um, with the daily penguins, they're sharing parental duties at the nest. So um, at certain times, there's always, when the chicks are really small and they're vulnerable to predation, Um, One of the parents is um, guarding them and the chicks have got small bellies so they kind of drip feed food to the the chicks at that stage and it's that time where we know their foraging chips are going to be shorter um, and we can put the heavier devices on and know that they're they're only going to be on for one or two days. So do you have a way of identifying the same bird from year to year? Because you mentioned sometimes they're never good at raising a chick so you, you must be able to ID them? Yeah, it's so valuable to have that information um, on animals um, so we can track their age. Um, When they're born as a chick, do they survive to 
um, become a juvenile and then through to becoming a breeding adult. And the only way that we can really do that is to um, ID the bird. So sometimes we'll put a leg band um, on a bird. Um, for penguins in the past, we used a flipper band. Um, but then uh, more recently, we're using microchips that are similar to those going into cats and dogs. Um, so they've got a unique number. And at Bayshavay's Island, where we've had the 30-year monitoring program, we have a device that stays on the island all year and it records the, the microchip of penguins as they come into the colony. It weighs the bird as it crosses the platform and then it um, scans them on the way out and weighs them again so we can look at how uh, much... Um, their weight changed when they were in the colony, which is probably associated with how much food they delivered to their chick. Um, and the same with when they went out to sea, so how much food they gained or they didn't gain over a period of time. That's so futuristic to think that there's this bar scanning where penguins can come in, get ID'd, get weighed, and to be able to do that in a long-term monitoring data set is like the dream for ecology work. But if you could pick any animal where you could track it with no limitations of device size or battery, you could just have the data collected in an instant, what would be your dream animal to know everything about its foraging? (laughs) I really enjoy working with fur seals. Um, They're very charismatic and I just have a really um, good connection with with that that species. Um, I think they're very majestic in the water. The species that we have around Australia, um, they feed on lots of different prey and I find that really interesting as well. Um, And I've been doing some work in my PhD to look at whether the diversity of prey that the species are feeding on, is that because every individual eats a lot of different things or do some individuals only target three or four things um, and then every individual is different? So... um, yeah, I'm finding some evidence to suggest that's the case um, in the males. Yeah, but I kind of only scratched the surface with that, so it's really sparked a lot of interest um, in what else is going on for the, that species. Um, it was almost exterminated by humans from harvesting for its pelts back in the day, and thankfully, with a lot of conservation work, that species has recovered really well. Um, but now we, we, they haven't been around us and um, the coastlines for a long time and now they're turning up in areas and creating new interactions um, with human populations. So I'm really keen to understand more about um, those interactions and how we can manage them effectively. Well, hopefully one day you'll have all the answers that you want. So thank you so much, Marcus. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to That's Why I Call Science. We love bringing you STEM-related content and we really hope you enjoyed the show. If you did and you want to get in touch, you can find us That's What I Call Science or That Science Taz on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. My name is Ollie Dove and I'd like to thank once more our guest, Dr. Marcus Sultan, for coming on today. Hope you all have a wonderful week. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science at all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. 
Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.